The scripture text for this morning's sermon is from 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray together for our time in the Word. Our Father, you have a powerful and pastoral word to speak to us today, and I pray that you would minister that word to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we could be emotionally set free from that feeling of condemnation today if we would only open up our mouths and receive The truth is that everybody who has believed in Jesus Christ has already been freed from condemnation, but sometimes we struggle with the feeling. So please come near to us today, Father. Please help us. Please set us free. And as you set us free, I pray that you would cause us to bear much fruit this very day for the glory of your name and for the joy of our souls and for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John 3 29 or 19 through 24 is a perplexing and an important passage. It's it's perplexing because when you're reading chapter 3 at full speed, it's a little bit difficult to understand why John says what he says at this moment and how it relates to the rest of the chapter. In fact, over the centuries, uh, Bible commentators going all the way back at least to Augustine that I'm aware of have suggested that at this point, John, as an old man who had a lot on his mind to say, got a little bit lost with his train of thought, went on a bit of a rabbit trail, and then came back at the beginning of chapter 4 to talk more directly about false teachers and how the church ought to interrelate to them. And while I have some sympathy for that point of view, because I too struggled to make sense of what John was saying, At the end of the day, I think that it's better to conclude that John, at the end of chapter 3, is actually seeking to speak a pastoral word into the lives of people he loved, a word that they very much needed to hear. John had just laid out some very glorious things in chapter 3, and now he's trying to help us deal at the end of chapter 3 with the reality of life in Christ. And here's the reality of life in Christ. We are going to struggle We're going to struggle with living by faith in God. We're going to struggle with one another. This will not be easy. And sometimes when we struggle, we begin to doubt. Not just doubt the gospel, but doubt our relationship to God in Christ. And I think that John the pastor wanted to speak a pastoral word to his people and to us this morning. And I pray with all my heart that we'll receive it. 
to help you understand how I'm seeing the end of chapter 3, I want to back up to the beginning and just take about five minutes to, to summarize what we've learned over the last three or four weeks. I apologize for basically repeating the things that I've already said over the last few weeks, but I trust that by the time I, I walk us through the chapter, you'll, you'll understand why I decided to do this. At the beginning of chapter 3, John lays out a vision of the hope that we have in Christ. And by we, I mean people who belong to Christ and who have put their faith in him. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the fullness of your salvation, if you're looking to him to secure your future, not only here on this earth, but in eternity, if that's you, then John lays out a hope for you at the beginning of chapter 3, namely that one day you and I together are going to see our Savior face to face. Right now, we have to live by faith. Right now, we read the words of God, and by the Spirit of God, we believe them and do our best by his power to apply them. And we are coming to know Jesus Christ in truth. The Jesus we know is the real Jesus, and when we see him, we will not be seeing a stranger, but one day... We're going to see him face to face. And John tells us that when we see him, the power of his glory is actually going to transform us from the inside out radically and eternally. Not only will we see him, not only will we be with him, but we're going to become like him. This is the hope that we have. And John says in verse 3, that anybody who has this hope in Jesus Christ living inside of him or her will spend their lives getting ready for that day. The way he puts it is that we'll purify ourselves just as Jesus is pure. But the word he uses for purity there is the same word used for people who are getting themselves ready to go into the temple of God. If you have the hope of Jesus Christ living in you, you're going to spend your life getting ready for the day when you're going to see him. This is going to be the dominant dream over your life. Some of us have goals for our lives on this earth, and some of us are really making progress toward those goals. But if your goals for your life on this earth do not take into account the great destiny God has laid out before you, you got the wrong goals. You need to let your goals on this earth be shaped by God's vision for your life, which is a much greater vision than anyone that we have for our earthly lives. Just to give you a very quick example, when it comes to the American dream, I can tell you honestly that I have absolutely no desire to fulfill that dream in the life of my family. And it's not because I think it's an evil dream. It's because I think that it's far too small a dream for the child of God. What do I care about owning a house and having stocks and bonds and properties and an inheritance to give to my daughter when I've already inherited everything in the Lord Jesus Christ? When I'm a son of God through Jesus Christ, I'm a citizen of his kingdom, and one day I'm going to see him, one day I'm going to become like him, and one day, along with everybody else who believes in him, I'm going to reign with him forever and ever and ever. That's the dream I'm living for. And if along the way I happen to own a few things and enjoy a few things in this great land of ours, then so be it. But to be honest with you, I could take it or leave it. Because there's a greater dream that dominates our lives. And beloved, when we're free in Christ, we are truly free. You could be imprisoned for your faith for the rest of your life, and you would still be free. Because the things God has given us in Christ cannot be taken away. John wants us to be gripped by this vision. He wants us to live in light of this vision. And so 
He goes on in verses 4 to 10 to teach us a little bit about sin and to do everything he can to woo us away from sin because that's the path to freedom. And you'll probably remember that in verse 4, he defines sin as lawlessness. As I taught you a few weeks ago, the word lawlessness does not mean the absence of law. It means the disregard of the law. It means that we have the law of God, but we pay no attention to it. It means that we have heard the words of God and we don't value them. We set them aside. We disregard them. And when we disregard what God has said, we disregard God himself. And when we disregard God himself and disregard his word, we have no other choice but to put ourselves in his place and to put our wisdom in the place of his wisdom. When we disregard God, we become a God to ourselves and we become a word to ourselves. We become a law to ourselves. We commit idolatry. We commit blasphemy. And John is saying, don't go that way. That is the way of death. It might feel like the way to freedom, to loose yourself from the chains of the commands of God, but it's actually the way of death. When I was young and I began to get involved in drugs, oh, I thought I was so free. When I dropped out of school at 14 years old and left home two months later, I thought I was so free, and yet I was in the midst of trapping myself in a way that I would never be able to get out without the intervention of God. That's the way all sin is. All sin seems to set us free, but it actually traps us. And John is saying, just don't live that way. Come live a better way. Especially the household of God. Those of us who have come to know God through the Lord Jesus Christ, learn to live with utter regard for God, with utter regard for his word. Learn to value the things that he has said and to live by his will, by his wisdom. Learn the joy of following your creator and not just believing him and trusting in him and hoping that he will give you the rewards of those who believe. Live like that. With that, John goes on to teach us in verses 11 through 18 to love one another because one of the primary ways we, we express our regard for God is by regarding those whom he regards. It's by loving those whom he has loved with an everlasting love. It's by loving one another. In fact, as I said a few weeks ago, when John says, love one another as you have heard from the beginning, he's just expressing what Jesus already expressed because the command to love God and the command to love one another are inseparably tied to each other. They are distinguishable, but they're inseparable, beloved. You cannot say that you love God and then act hatefully towards others. And since this command to love one another is so central to life in God, John pleads with us, don't be like Cain. Cain murdered his brother. Most of us aren't going to go that way. We're not going to take an, an, an action that's so extreme. But the root of our rebellion against God is just the same as the root of Cain's sin. It is just the same. And when we fail to, one another, to love one another, we basically do what Cain did. Here's what Cain did. You can read in Genesis 4, God drew near to him and pled with him. God had not received his offering because his offering was not offered in faith. And Cain was very angry against his brother and Cain had it in his heart to strike out against his brother in jealousy. God drew near to him and said, Cain, don't do it. Don't walk in that way. There's a better way. Walk in the way that I will show you. And behold, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and you must master it, because if you don't master it, it's going to master you. God, along with that wisdom, gave Cain everything he needed to obey. And you know what Cain did? God said, thanks. Uh, Cain said to God, thanks, but no thanks. 
I've heard what you had to say. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to disregard your wisdom. I'm going to disregard your will. I'm going to disregard the the things that you want me to do with my life, and I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to be my own law. I'm going to do what I want to do. And with that, Cain took the life of his brother. John isn't so much telling us not to murder, although that'd be a pretty good idea. Let's not murder. John is saying, don't be like Cain. Don't disregard God. Don't disregard his wisdom. Don't walk in your own ways. Don't become your own God, because whether you murder or not, your actions of rebellion have the aroma of murder about them. Just don't go in that way. Instead, John says, come and learn what it means to be like Jesus Christ. By the power of God pouring through Jesus to everybody who believes, come and don't just receive from him, but be like him. He laid down his life for us, so learn the joy of laying down your lives for one another. Just as Jesus Christ loved us by putting his Father first, love one another by putting your Father first. Seek your Father Read his word, value what he has to say, take it to heart, pray for the power to apply it. Be a people who long to know the will and ways of God that you might actually walk in that way. And when you begin to walk in that way, don't think only of yourself, but look also to the interests of others, as the Apostle Paul said. Express your love for God, express your appreciation to God by loving each other, by laying down your lives for one another. I hope you can hear that the call here is not just to do more, try harder, but the call here is to come and by the grace of God, be like your Savior. You see, this is part of preparing for the great day when we meet Jesus face to face. Whoever has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Whoever has this hope in him starts the process now of becoming like Jesus because that's going to be the point then. When we see him face to face, we're going to be radically transformed into his image. So why not enter into that joy right now? Why not learn what it means to walk away from sin and put our faith in God and then love one another? This is what John is up to in 1 John chapter 3. This is the lifestyle that he's trying to plead for. This brings us to verse 19. 19 and 20 together. Let's read them again. John writes, By this... We shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. As I mentioned earlier, when we're reading at full speed, and and perhaps even when we're reading that together now, it is a little bit difficult to understand why John said what he said at this precise moment in the way that he said it. I'll be honest with you, when I sat down to really begin the process of putting a message together for today, I kind of scratched my head and said, Lord, what am I, I going to do with this text? How am I going to turn this into a sermon? And I have learned very well over the years that when that kind of thought strikes my mind, to just put that thought aside and just to begin meditating on the words of God and let the Father minister to me that I might pass on to you what he taught me. And boy, did he ever minister to me this week. I think the key to understanding what John is up to at least begins with noticing the the tense of the verb in verse 19. Look what it says. It says, by this we shall know. By this we will know. John is looking into the future And he's anticipating something, and he's trying to get the people of God ready to face that something. And what is that something? 
That something is the ongoing struggle in our lives that every believer has with faith in God and love towards one another. There may be a a very small, small percentage of people who have believed over centuries of time who are blessedly free from the struggle of faith, blessedly free from the struggle of love, but I even doubt that, that there's even a, a small percentage of people who have not had this struggle. Most of the better biographies that I've read of the greatest heroes of the faith throughout time have shown that every so-called hero of our faith has struggled profoundly with their faith in God and their love toward other people, at least at some point of their life. The struggle with faith, the struggle with love is normal, beloved. It's normal. It is part of what it means to be a Christian person. And John wants us to be ready to face that struggle. The experience, the the something that John has in mind is the regular and sometimes daily feeling in our hearts of condemnation in the presence of God because of the way that we have acted in the world, right? John has said that if you know God, you're going to live in a certain way. So what do you do when you go out? You hear a message like that, you believe it, you want to live it. You leave out of church and you seem to live just the opposite way. You struggle with faith. You struggle with loving others. What, what are you to do with that? Often, often we begin to feel a sense of condemnation. And pastorally, John is trying to address that sense of condemnation here at the end of chapter 3. In chapter 1, John labored to help us take our sins seriously. That's one side of the problem. Sometimes we make too little of sin. We make light of it. We're like, ah, whatever, God will forgive me. I can do what I want to do, and he'll forgive me. He'll be gracious toward me. We, we, we make light of sin. I know I do. And John wants to plead with us and say, don't do that, beloved. Do not do that. If you read chapter 1, especially the end of it carefully, you'll understand he is laboring hard to get us to take seriously the massive weight and the murderous aroma that sin has in the sight of God. John says at the beginning of chapter 2, I write these things so that you will not sin. He wants us not only to understand the weight of sin, but he wants us through the power of God in Christ to walk away from it. And this is why he tells us there in chapter 2 that, listen, but even when we do sin, we have an advocate with God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin is already covered. So don't let your sin become a, a burdenous weight to you that that causes you to stop fighting against it. Every time you sin, just confess that sin and you're going to open up the floodgates of grace. And as you open up the floodgates of grace, God will free you from a sense of condemnation. God will free you from, uh, from your unrighteousness. He will cleanse you. John, at the beginning of chapter 1, is trying to help us take our sins seriously. Here in chapter 3, you know what he's up to? Here in chapter 3, he's trying to comfort us with the knowledge that the ongoing struggle with sin doesn't imply that we don't know God. This is what happens sometimes, even to the believing heart. We come to struggle so much with our sin that we wonder, do I even know God? Sometimes I, I have struggled. I'm not sure that I've ever really gotten to the place where I really question, do I know God? But sometimes I've looked back at my 30 plus years of walking with Jesus now. It's been, I guess this year has been 33 years. And I look back and say, how in the world could I have made so little progress with this problem, that problem, and this problem? Really? 33 years? And I'm still struggling with nursery school stuff, spiritually speaking? How, how could this be? 
And sometimes I feel condemned by that. Sometimes I feel convicted because I haven't made enough of what God has given to me over the years. And I think John is trying to highlight the moment where that sense of condemnation and conviction can become so overwhelming that it becomes paralyzing. And so he says to us, here's how we know that we are of the truth. When we begin to struggle with our sin, when we begin to feel a sense of condemnation, at that point, God comes along in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes he does it through the word. Sometimes he does it through a sermon like this. Sometimes he does it through conversations with friends. Sometimes in my life, I remember once hearing Chip Ingram preach a message over the radio. Now it's all about podcasts, but back in that day, I don't remember the particular day, but it's been years ago, and I just heard Chip Ingram preach this great message that was so freeing to me from something that I was struggling from. But sometimes when we're under the weight of condemnation, God will come alongside of us, and he will remind us about what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He will remind us of the power of forgiveness. He will remind us of the finality of what Jesus did on the cross. He will remind us that Jesus is not a minor conqueror of sin, but that he destroyed it. Jesus killed death through his death on the cross. And sometimes we know this in our minds, but we need to remember this in our hearts. And when we struggle with condemnation, the child of God will often receive a visit from God in one way, shape, or form to remind us, my son, my daughter, your sin is not good, but the atonement that I have provided for you is greater than your sin, so be free. Be free. I actually think that the sense of condemnation we sometimes feel because of sin is a good thing in measure because it's a sign that we care. It's a sign that there is a a sensitivity in our hearts to God. Our hearts are alive before God. Kim and I were talking about this week that verse in Jeremiah. I don't remember exactly where the verse is, but there's a phrase repeated a few times that this people has forgotten how to blush. They've become so used to sin, they have no sense of shame anymore. There is a sense in which shame is a good thing. And a sense of condemnation is a good thing. It, it is right when a child sins against his or her parents and feels like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. That's actually a good thing. The bigger problem parents have is when they go to confront their child about something that happened and the kid's like, what's the big deal? Who cares? Why can't I do this every Tuesday and why not throw in Thursdays and Saturdays as well? Why not? What's the big deal? That's a problem. That's a huge heart problem. So when you have a sense of condemnation over your sin, it's not all bad, it's not necessarily bad, but I'll tell you what what is bad and what's definitely not good. And that is when we continually live under a sense that we are condemned by God to the place where we feel paralyzed, to the place where we feel like we just can't keep progressing, to the place where we feel like, why should I even keep trying? Why even keep trying? All I'm going to do is fail and fail and fail and fail, and so we just want to give up. That is not good, and the reason it's not good is not because it's psychologically harmful. It's because it's a great misunderstanding of the gospel. You see, in Christ, God has set us free from condemnation. That's a fact. We need our emotions to catch up with the fact, you see. There's a sense in which the Spirit brings conviction and says, son, daughter, don't go that way. Go this way. 
But when that sense of conviction turns into an overwhelming sense of condemnation, we can either know that the devil is out to play and seeking to destroy our faith in God, or somehow our flesh has taken over and become more powerful than the gospel. Let me read for you from Romans chapter 8 what God has said about the place of condemnation in the lives of those who believe in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what God has said. There is therefore now what? Say it out loud. No condemnation. Say it again, louder. No condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let your heart hear it. Let your heart receive it. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin, not us. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And then at the end of chapter 8, Paul just can't help himself. He comes back and rejoices in this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? against God's children. Who is to condemn, Paul asks. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Who can ultimately condemn us? Beloved, God is greater than all, and therefore, John says, when our hearts condemn us, notice what he says there. God is greater than our hearts, too. He's greater than our hearts. If no one in heaven or on earth has the right to condemn us, then guess what? Not even our own hearts have the right to condemn us. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have no right to pronounce a counter-verdict upon ourselves. We don't. God has said you are free from condemnation, period, and end of story. No change of mind will be coming either in this age or in the one to come. We are free in Christ, beloved. We are free. John's pastoral intent at the end of chapter 3 is to help us feel the power of the freedom that we have. There are other passages where he's working on our minds He's trying to help us believe the right things in the right ways. We need to believe. Let your life be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We need that. But right now, John is doing heart surgery. That's what he's up to. And he's saying, listen, no matter what you believe, I get, I get that you struggle with this in your hearts. In your hearts, receive this truth. God has set you free from condemnation. So be free. Be free. To help us understand how absolute is the freedom that God has over our hearts or has given to our hearts, notice what John adds at the end of verse 20. He said, and hey, just by the way, God knows everything. God knows everything. 
God has freed you from condemnation, and don't miss this, he knows everything there is to know about you. He knows the sins that you have confessed. He also knows the sins that you know about that you have not confessed. In addition to that, God knows about a whole bunch of sins that none of us have ever confessed because we don't even realize we've sinned. I'm not talking here about the sins we know about and we just refuse to confess. What I'm saying is there's all kinds of sins that we have sinned that we are 100% blind to. I don't know if God will ever reveal to us the fullness of our sin. I don't know if maybe in a flash he'll help us see the totality of what we've done so that we can understand the power of what he's freed us from in Christ. But I promise you that God knows things about our sin life that we have never even begun to know. He knows that. And you know what else God knows? God knows our backgrounds. He knows why we are who we are. He knows why we do what we do. God knows our brokenness. God knows the ways in which people have sinned against us that cause us to act out in ways that we really wish we would not have acted out. There are times when I'm doing stuff and right in the middle of the way I'm acting, I'm like, you dummy, why don't you just stop? And there's something in me that feels like I can't stop. And I I don't want to go into some deep psychology inside my mind, but I could easily trace it back to things that happened to me in my childhood. Brokenness that was there, that's still manifesting it here in my 52-year-old adult life. God sees all that stuff and he has compassion for it. God knows us like nobody else knows us. And you know what God knows above all this? Way above all this? God knows the power of what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. God knows like nobody else knows the fullness of the atonement and all that it means for those who will believe. He knows that. God knows that he sent his only begotten son into the world to live a perfectly righteous life, to die a horrible death on the cross for our sins, to be buried in the earth he created, and then to be raised from the dead on the third day for our justification so that whoever believes in him will not perish under the weight of God's wrath towards sin, but will be freed from condemnation, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God knows what he accomplished And God knows that for everyone who puts their faith in Christ, that is an irreversible accomplishment. God knows that. And God wants to come close to our hearts and say, Son, daughter, you're right to have a sense of conviction about your sin. That's actually a good sign. I'm glad to see that your heart is tender before me and that you feel it when you sin. You feel something about that. You care about that. That's a good thing. But here's what's not good, the sense of condemnation that you have. You are my child. You are my child. So be free, my child. A couple weeks ago, Asa and Tracy and Kim and I were meeting together, praying, seeking the Lord together. And Tracy asked a really good question. You know, there's that thing that Martin Luther has that says we're simultaneously saints and sinners. And Tracy just asked, well, what what really are we? What's the fundamental identity of, of a Christian person? And my answer to that is that we are fundamentally saints, We are not, as far as our identity, we are not sinners in our identity. Fundamentally, God has forever transformed us so that we are his children who are his holy ones. That's what the word saints means, holy ones. God has made us holy. We are holy ones who still struggle with sin, but our sin is not our identity. Our our status as a child of God, that's our identity. And I think what John is trying to do here at the end of this chapter 
is to help us feel the power of that. And he's trying to persuade us that this is what God is up to in our lives. He didn't just remove the reality of condemnation. He wants to remove now the emotional paralysis of condemnation. That's what he wants. It's not at all that God makes light of our sin in light of the atonement. That that would be impossible for God to make light of sin. But I'll tell you what it is. It's that God makes much of the atonement, and therefore he puts our sin in its place. That's what it's about. God makes much of the atonement, and therefore he seeks to put our sin in its place. That's what he's up to. Those who have inside of them the hope of seeing Jesus face to face will spend their lives getting ready for that day. But as we spend our lives getting ready for that day, we're going to fail over and over and over again. We're going to fail on a daily basis. As we fail, John is trying to help us see that God will come alongside and encourage our hearts and say, don't give up, my child, because you're just that. You're my child. So let's walk in this way. Let's not walk in that way. But no matter what, let's not give up because the hope that I have won for you cannot be taken away. Oh, child of God, receive this word from your heavenly Father. This leads us now to verses 21 and 22, if you'll look there with me to see how John continues. He says to precious people of God, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what's pleasing to him. When God sets a heart free from condemnation uh, over sin against him and against others, those hearts are filled with a unique kind of confidence that gives us a boldness in prayer. This is a natural fruit of God's ministry in our lives. One of my Bible dictionaries defines the Greek word here for for confidence like this. I really love this definition a lot. Quote, confidence is an attitude of openness that stems from freedom and lack of fear. That's a really good definition. If you're a note taker, I'd invite you to write that down. Confidence is an attitude of openness that stems from, that is the fruit of freedom and lack of fear. That is a very helpful definition because the kind of confidence that the children of God possess in the presence of their father is not self-confidence. It is not self-assurance. It is not self-reliance. It is not rooted in the self. It does not boast in the self. It does not focus in on the self. The kind of confidence that the children of God have in the presence of God is God-confidence. It is God-reliance. It is God-assurance. It is rooted in God, and it boasts in God. The kind of confidence we have is essentially faith in action, beloved. The kind of confidence we have is a kind of way of the Christian heart saying to God, I thank you for what you've done for me. I'm grateful for what you've done for me. I respect you for what you have done for me. The kind of confidence that the Christian heart has is is a kind of worship that says to the Father, Oh, Father, even as I look to you for forgiveness and found all that I needed both now and forevermore, so I will look to you for grace to live this life, and I know that I will find whatever I need from your hand. Oh, Father, even as you have given me power to be free from the condemnation of sin, I know that you will give me power to live a life of obedience and the joy that that way of life provides. I am confident, Father, that you will fulfill all your promises to me in Christ Jesus. You see 
The confidence we have when we're set free by God is a confidence in God, not in ourselves. So it doesn't lead us to be arrogant toward other people. It doesn't lead us to be arrogant toward unbelievers and toward one another. It leads us to be humble and confident in God. It leads us to to help put our arms around our brothers and sisters when they're struggling and say, just come with me. Let's go to God. You're going to find all the grace that you need for your moment of need. You're going to find everything that you need there. This is the kind of confidence that John sees as the fruit of a heart set free. Now, as for how that confidence relates to prayer, I think you can already hear it in the way that I've answered. The heart that has been set free by God will continue to look to God for freedom. The heart that has been set free by God will continue to call upon his name and say, Father, even as you have freed me from condemnation, now empower me for obedience. I want to learn not just to depend on Jesus, but I want to learn to, to be like him. I want to learn to live the life he lived. I want to learn to listen to your words and care more about them than any other thing in this world. I want to learn to listen to your words and value your wisdom so much that I want to apply it in the world. And when you tell me to walk left, I want to walk left. When you tell me to walk right, I want to walk right. When you tell me, whoa, danger, turn around, I want to stop and turn around. I want to live the kind of life that values you and walks in your ways. Oh, Father. Please help me. That's how a confident heart prays. It depends on God. It cries out to God. It's free, not just inside, but it's free in the presence of God. It's actually one sign that your heart has truly been freed in God as all of a sudden your head wants to go that way. There's like this magnet, this gravity that causes us to want to seek out and enjoy more of the God who has been so incredibly gracious to us. Prayer is the cry of a heart set free. That's what prayer really is. It's the heart of a child calling upon the grace of his or her father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when John says in verse 22 that whatever we ask we receive from God, he is definitely not saying that God becomes some kind of heavenly Santa Claus for believers so that anything we want we just automatically get. that's, That's not true. Not even a mediocre earthly father would give his children every single thing they ask for. That would be abusive. That would be hurtful. God is a lot better than mediocre fathers. He's a lot better than the best fathers on this earth. God would never give us every single thing we ask for because we don't always have the wisdom to ask for the right things. But when we pray according to the will and wisdom of God, he has already answered yes in Christ. You see? He is saying here, not that he's just going to give us anything we want, He's saying here that when we call upon the name of God and ask him for power to do the things he's already called us to do, God has already said yes. God has already said yes. You see, as Peter said, Peter said in 2 Peter 1-2, that God has given us every single thing that we need for life and godliness. It's already a done deal. It's done. It's done. It's finished. When the heart of the child of God calls upon the Father and says, Father, please give to me what you've already granted to me, a desire to love you, a desire to follow you, the ability to understand you, the ability to apply your words in my life. God has already said yes to those prayers, beloved. He might not grant what we want in the time we want or in the way we want, but he has already said yes to those prayers. John is saying, 
that when the child of God is freed by God and calls upon the name of God, that you're talking to a father who is disposed to be gracious to you. You're talking to a father who wants to lavish kindness upon you. If you are a child and you had a, a decent father, wasn't there great joy in your life when you would go to ask your dad for something that you knew he already wanted to give to you? I remember the stress of sometimes asking my parents for things I was pretty sure they didn't want to give me. Like, I'm not kidding now, I'm just remembering now a time I asked for a set of drums. Mothers in particular are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe if we get the soundproof room someday, I'll get you a set of drums. I never got the set of drums. But there were other times I asked for things that I knew my parents were disposed to give to me, and there was a joy even in asking, because I knew that the yes was already there. This is the kind of confidence, the kind of freedom, it's the kind of joy John's talking about. When your heart has been set free from God, by God, then you want to come to him and say, oh, Father, please give me all that I need to walk in your will and to walk in your ways, because you know, you know that he's already disposed to say yes. Now, when John continues and says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases to him, what pleases him, he's not saying that our obedience earns us favor with God. He's not saying that since you did all these good works, now God is going to answer your prayers. He's not saying that our blessing is dependent on who we are and what we have done. He's not saying that at all. He's actually saying quite the opposite. He's saying that the child of God, once freed by God, will have a heart to pray according to the will and ways of God. He's saying that the child of God, the fundamental cry of our heart is, Father, empower us to live the life that you have called us to live. Give us power for that. And because our aim is obedience, because our aim is glad submission to the wisdom of God, of course, of course, of course, God is very much disposed to answer our prayers. So how should we prepare for that day when we're going to see Jesus face to face? And how are we going to deal with the ongoing reality of our struggles with faith in God and love toward one another? They're going to continue. Well, I think John would say, look to God in all circumstances and seek God. When things are going well, seek God. Give thanks to him. Pray for more grace. When you're struggling with faith in God, bring your struggle to God and pray for grace. But let your eyes go upward. When we sin, we tend to turn inward. John is saying, resist the impulse. Lift your eyes upward. Take your struggles to God. When we struggle with loving one another, when we actually know that we have sinned against others, bring that to God. Bring it into his presence. Ask him for grace. Ask him for favor. He is so disposed to say yes. And when your heart is set free from condemnation, when your heart is ready not only to confess to him, but get right with others, and when you walk in that way, when you walk in that way, then call on God for fresh grace for the next day. That's how we prepare to see Jesus face to face. We walk with God by the very grace that's going to lead us to that very day. This leads us to the final words of the chapter. So if you'll look there with me at verses 23 and 24. John writes, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Verse 23, 
is one of the most straightforward and helpful statements, I think, about the Christian way of life anywhere in the Bible. And if you're not joining us in the effort of memorizing all of John's letters, which I perfectly understand that, I want to encourage you to mark chapter 3, verse 23, and memorize that verse. Memorize 1 John 3, 23. Hold it near to your heart. Meditate upon it until your heart really gets it. This is a rich, rich verse. There is gold in them thar hills, I promise you. Gold. Let me just summarize for you three quick things about this verse. I have so much to say. I can probably give two sermons on this verse. I'm not exaggerating. There is so much here. And this comes just from meditating in the park the other day. You could do this too. Just sit, memorize, meditate, let your Father speak to you. Here's three things that I noticed as I meditated. First of all, notice the repetition of the word commandment. First it's commandment, later the word is commanded, but it's the same word. There's a repetition. Verse 23 is kind of like a commandment sandwich. The bread is this word commandment, and then there's, there's content in between. This is not what God suggested, this is what God has commanded. This is what not, not what God has said. Listen, here's what I'd like you to do if you're okay with it. This is what God has said. You need to walk in this way no matter what you think of it. Trust me. Trust me. I know you better than you know yourself. I know life better than you will ever know it. Trust me. Walk in this way. These things are commandments, brothers and sisters. They're not suggestions. We need to take this to heart. Yes, even after the cross, there is such a thing as a commandment. And God here is commanding us to live in a particular way. But having said that, the commands of God really come as, as, a, as a call to freedom. The way that God has commanded us here is like God's command to the eagle. When he says to the eagle, fly in the sky all the days of your life and be free. Be what I have created you to be. The command that God gives to our heart is like the command God gives to the fish of the sea when he tells them here is an ocean so far and wide you will never find the end of it. So swim and eat and spend your life here. Be free. Be what I have created you to be. That's what God's saying to us. He is commanding us, but it is a command of life, beloved. It is a command of joy. You see, life really is this simple. God commanded us to put our faith in Jesus and to love one another. He created us, rather, for this. We were created to live by faith in Christ and love one another. And so God is simply saying to us, come and be who I have created you to be. Trust me. Walk in this way, and you will see the fruit of this way. Walk in this way, you will see the unending joy of this way. Come, walk in this way. Please receive these words in verse 23, as a commandment, because that's exactly what they are, a commandment, not a suggestion. Second thing, please notice that here is elsewhere, we're first commanded to put our faith in Jesus, and then we're commanded to love one another. This order is of utmost importance because the power we have to love one another comes from Jesus himself. And therefore, we must first look to him and draw from him and listen to him and be filled up with him. Otherwise, we'll have nothing to give to one another. As I have said to you several times in the last few weeks, the command to love God and to love one another are, are absolutely inseparable. But there is a, an order that's vital. If we try to love one another and forget this love for God peace, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to turn one another into idols. We're going to burn out. We're going to run out quickly of resources with which to truly love one another. We've got to love God first. And as we draw upon God, then we love one another. 
I said to you last week, and I will say to you again this week, the greatest thing you could do for anybody else in your life is to put God first and love him most. If God is absolutely first in your life, you will now be in a position where you're capable of loving others because you'll see things the way that he would have you see them. You'll gain his wisdom about people and circumstances. You'll gain his power to walk in obedience. Oh, he will give you every single thing you need for life and godliness. So God comes first, and then we love others. Very, very crucial point. Very easy to understand in the mind, by the way. It's a little more difficult to live in daily life. When you wake up first thing in the morning, your mind, like mine, probably fills with other things than God. And if we persistently push God aside for those other things, we are killing our ability to love one another. Do you realize detached from God, loving each other is not even possible? Do you realize that? It can look loving, it can feel loving, but true love is impossible, detached from God. Impossible. So I know that mentally this is easy to understand, but I'm talking about a way of life here. Don't miss this in your way of life. Is God coming first so that you then have the power to love others? This comes by way of commandment from the Lord. Listen to him. Trust his wisdom. He comes first, then others. Third thing, notice that here, as elsewhere, we're commanded to love one another, and we're not commanded to be loved by one another. If you were to search the entire Bible, 66 books in all, written over many centuries of time by about 40 different authors, you will not find a single command to be loved, but you will find many commands to love others. This is an important lesson for human beings across time and culture, but I think in a consumeristic culture in particular, it's very important. Because we are hardwired, we are profoundly trained to be self-centered. We're profoundly trained to want to be served. And if we're not served in the way we think we ought to, we're going to complain. Oh boy, are we going to complain. Compliment the person that serves you at the restaurant today and really mean it. And watch the look on their face when you do. The reason they're going to light up like a light bulb is because what they receive is 99% complaints and hardly any praise at all. This is just the way we're wired as consumers. We want to be served. We want, give me, give me, give me. Give me what I want in the way I want it and give it to me now. And if I don't get what I want in the way that I want, there's going to be a price to pay. And trust me, right now, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to my own heart. This is about us. Now, I'm not me looking down at you. I think this is a word we need to hear. We are commanded to be loved, to, to love and not to be loved. But here's the irony. Think about this. Think about this. What would happen if we all obeyed this command? What would happen? Imagine that every single one of us would take time, Saturday night, Sunday morning, to spend some time with God and prepare ourselves to come to church. In other words, we're filling up in God and we're getting ready to come to worship his name. But also, imagine what it would be like if every single person here came with the attitude that I am going to love others. That's what my focus is going to be on. I'm going to worship God and love others. What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen is that every one of us would leave here having been loved too. We would not only love, but every person in this room would also be loved, probably more than we would have ever expected. It's not that God doesn't want us to be loved. It's not that God doesn't want us to be loved by other people. It's that God knows the right path to that. You see, I think that's what's happening here. This is why the repeated command to love and never a command to be loved because he knows the proper path. If we will look to him and be filled up with him and then overflow with blessing as he does, 
All of us are going to find the love that we need along the way. All of us are going to be filled up. So I give you the love on another challenge. Why don't you try for the next few weeks to wake up on Sunday mornings and say, Father, please empower me to worship your name and love others. Come to church determined to love at least one person in some particular way. And let's see what happens. I promise you, if you would all take me up on that, and if I would remember what I'm saying right now, and if I would take me up on this, we're all going to discover the grace and wisdom of our God, that in learning to love, we will all also be loved. Oh, beloved, the wisdom of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the wisdom of God. May we hear it and hear it well. With this stunning verse in mind, John tells us in verse 24 that whoever keeps his commandments by the grace of God, demonstrates that God abides in him and he abides in God. In other words, when we obey the Lord, put our faith in Jesus and our love in other, toward other people, this doesn't become a, God, a, a cause for boasting in ourselves. It becomes evidence to us that we're actually walking with God. It, it sparks a kind of amazement in our hearts that says, wow, I really do know the Lord. And not because of what I've done for him, but because of what he has done for me. I feel the power now of the fact that I don't just believe in him in some abstract way, but I'm actually walking with God. And John closes out the chapter with these words. He says that we know that God is abiding us, quote, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. By the Spirit. It's another little twist that perplexed me for a little bit. Why does John throw the Holy Spirit in here quickly? But I think he's simply saying that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as the means by which we abide in God and God abides in us. You remember from chapter 2 that Jesus Christ gave us this anointing of the Holy Spirit and he says the anointing abides, it remains forever and ever and ever. We have the atonement that frees us from sin and we have the Holy Spirit now abiding in our lives forever and ever. And it's by the Spirit that God ministers to us his, his forgiveness. It's by the Spirit that he ministers to us his cleansing power. It's by the Spirit that God frees us from condemnation. It's by the Spirit that God teaches us to believe in Jesus Christ and keep on believing. It's by the Spirit that God empowers us to love one another and keep on loving. And as the Spirit works in our lives, beloved, we say, wow, this is amazing. I really do know God. I'm not who I want to be, but boy, I'm not who I was. God is working in my life. And in this way, I think John says, you can be sure that you know him. Remember, he wrote his letter for that reason. He said, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He does not want us to live with the weight of doubt about our relationship with God. And I believe here at the end of chapter 3, that's exactly what he's up to. He's trying to free struggling believers from the weight of condemnation and doubt. So let us, let John minister to us this morning. And let us allow the Lord to set us free. John's a pastor. Fundamentally, that's what he is. Even when we get to the book of Revelation, I want to really help you understand that his goal was not to spark all these movements of different end times philosophies. His goal was to pastor the people of God. And he wrote the end of chapter 3 as a pastor. He cares about the people of God. Yep, he was old, very old when he wrote this letter. But nope, he was not on a rabbit trail. Not at all. The end of chapter 3 is crucially important as he tries to pastorally apply the wisdom of God to our lives. So let's receive it. Let's hear what he has to say, and let's embrace the freedom that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you so much for this powerful word that you first spoke to John and then to the church of Ephesus and the surrounding area. Thank you for preserving this word all these many years. And thank you for bringing it to us this morning. Father, I pray especially for those who are struggling with a sense of condemnation in their lives. Father, I pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would set them free, even right this moment, that you would set them free. And for all of us, Father, I pray that as you set us free, that you would cause us to call upon your name in the confidence that you will hear and answer our prayers. And as we call upon your name, please, Father, prepare us for the day when we will see Jesus face to face. For it is in his name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.